Well, good morning, my friends. It is Wednesday, which means it's time for Bible study. I hope that you all can join me live here. Um, and for those of you who have never done a Facebook Live video, um, I think that you're gonna enjoy this. Um, one of the suggestions that I have for Facebook Live is that you can both watch along here and comment, um, but you can also share and watch, have a watch party. Um, there's a little option right there next to this video that says host a watch party. And that just means that you can let other people know that you're here for Bible study with us. And that helps others find this study and join us live. Um, I am pulling up the video right now because I want to make sure that I can actually have a chance to respond to your questions. And so you will see that since we're not in person, um, I want to encourage you to actually comment below on the video as you have questions. Um, I've got some people helping me to moderate, um, to ping me whenever some question pops up occasionally so I can pause the study and address those questions. Um, I really miss having everyone in person. You know, it's teaching Bible study is one of the favorite things that I do at St. Michael. Um, and we usually have a good 100, 150 people in the chapel on Wednesday mornings. Um, but a lot of you have told me in the last couple days that you can't be there in person. And so I'm real excited that we can do this now and maybe we can create um, a new platform to touch as many people as possible. So quick note, I know that many of us are separated physically from each other, but we don't have to be separated socially from each other. It doesn't cost anything to remind people that they're not alone. And so as we go through this time that can be stressful to so many, just take a minute ping a friend, give someone a phone call, let them know that they might be physically separated, but they are never alone. It doesn't cost anything. Um, and in this chat group, you may be able to say hi to someone that you haven't seen for a while, hi to a neighbor, um, and make this our own little community moment for the next hour. So we're gonna open with a prayer and then we'll get started on this Genesis study. So the Lord be with you, let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you today with grateful hearts for the gift of this life and for the mystery of love. And we ask you to bless each one of us here as part of this study to open our hearts and our minds to help us put down the stress and the worry and the anxiety we may have brought to this moment so that we can make space for your spirit to enter in and to fill us up and to give us peace. We pray for all of our friends who need your healing touch, those who are ill, those who need to know that they are not alone, and those that need to know how much they are loved by you. I also pray that each one of us will feel empowered to help spread your love in the world so that we can be your hands and feet. I pray for all those who care for the sick, those first responders and those that are still going into work in order to help us meet our essential needs, that they will also remain safe. And God, I pray for this entire world, for all those who do not have the luxuries and the comforts that we do, that they may also feel your presence and that you may sustain them in their lives. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 
We are studying Genesis, and Genesis is just about my favorite book in the whole Bible. So for those of you who have been with me this whole year, you've heard me say so many different things about the way that we need to study Genesis. But for those of you who may be joining me for the first time, I want to make just a couple quick notes a lot has happened. There are a lot of things that happened before chapter 34 that um, I'd encourage you to catch up on um, uh, around this video, either above, below, wherever it is. There's a link to the St. Michael website where all of the past studies, audios, are located so that you can listen if you'd like to catch up on Genesis, um, if you need something to do rather than watching so much just kind of horrible news scroll through your feed. Maybe you can go back and you can listen to some Genesis lessons um, and gain some information about this great book that really is the bedrock of the whole Bible. Um, last year when we were finishing our second year, this is the third year that I've done this study at St. Michael, um, we were finishing last year's study and I asked everyone, what do you really want to study? And the number one book that came up was Revelation. I love Revelation, but I said, if we're going to do Revelation right, we have to actually start with Genesis. And so we are spending this year in Genesis with the intention that next year we're going to go into Revelation. And so if this is new to you, welcome. And we'd love for you to kind of jump in with us now, catch up a little bit, and stick with us next year as we move on to Revelation. But for today, we're looking at Genesis chapter 34, 5, and 6. So a few preliminary remarks. Genesis is a collection of stories that tells the history of the Israelites, really of the Jewish people. Now, in Genesis, these people are not yet Jewish. The Israelites do not become Jewish until after the Exodus, when Moses is at Sinai with all of the Israelites having escaped out of Egypt, and Moses receives the commandments and they begin to create a set of laws around the commandments, that's when the Israelites become Jewish. Right now in Genesis, they are just still Israelites. And so that's important for us to understand. It's also important for us to know that Genesis was written during the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile came after the kingdom period in Israel. And so the quick history here is Israelites kind of wander around. They land in Egypt, and we'll see how that happens at the end of Genesis. Then they come out of Egypt with Moses. Moses dies before going to the promised land. Joshua leads them into the promised land. And the 12 tribes establish themselves in mostly what is today the country of Israel. And those 12 tribes meander around for a bit in the period of Judges. But then they coalesce around some kings. King David is really the first king that unifies all the tribes in Israel. And then, of course, Solomon comes along, builds the first temple, but then the kingdom divides, north and south. There is a lot of transition, a lot of kings that roll on and on. But ultimately, what happens is that the kingdom of Assyria comes down and sacks the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the kingdom of Babylon comes and sacks the southern kingdom of Israel. And they take the leaders of the Israel nation up into Babylon in exile. They're in exile for decades. And when they're in exile, they ask themselves a very critical question. How did this happen? How did it happen that we were doing everything right, that God had chosen us 
and that we find ourselves in exile. This really upended everything that the Jewish people thought about themselves. This chosenness was put into question. And so in the exile, all of these great thinkers, these priests and these professionals of the Israelites, were able to imagine a new way of being with God. And in order to have this new way of being with God, they had to go back and figure out their stories from the past, figure out how they got to where they were in exile, kind of what went wrong, where they went off the rails. And they attempted to establish a system that would effectively keep them on the rails for good. That's the incredible legal tradition that they developed after the exile, and that's the kind of legal tradition that Jesus speaks into. So when Jesus comes on the scene, the Israelites, the Jews, have created an incredible system of rules and laws that are really meant to keep them on the rails, to keep them connected to God so that they don't find themselves in exile again. But the problem there is that these rules and these regulations and these laws um, effectively become a barrier between them and God. And so Jesus speaks into that in the Gospels about how really God is just loving You know, what are we really supposed to do? We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And all those other rules and laws, even though totally well-intended, have actually kind of gotten in the way. Okay, so that's a little off topic. Um, But I wanted to put Genesis into context in that way because one of the critical understandings about studying Genesis is that we know that Genesis is a set of stories told hundreds of years after the events they mean to depict. That is critical for us because these stories were told by oral tradition over and over and over again. And it was hundreds of years later when these stories were actually written down, which means these stories are not meant to be a critical history. These stories are meant to be stories that help the Jewish people know who they are. That means a storyteller is creating a narrative arc in these stories for a particular reason. When we read through Genesis today, chapters 34 through 36, it's important for us to know that these stories are meant to tell a lesson, to create a lesson, to tell a truth for the Jewish people. And so we're going to look through those lenses as we begin this study. So, Chapter 34 is the rape of Dinah. Right. You thought things were going to be easy today? Nope. We get started off with something kind of difficult and very hard. Um, How did we get here? Who is Dinah and where does she fit in the story? First off, I hope that you've gotten your Bibles, right? You better have a Bible at home. A Bible is that book that has collected dust on your nightstand. You need to go get your Bible, open it up to chapter 34. This is Genesis chapter 34. It's not in the back. It's in the front. So don't flip in the middle and start flipping around. Just open up the cover. You'll find it. So Dinah falls in place here in a story that really roots itself in Abraham. So 
we get the creation narratives, then the flood story, and then we get all this stuff. But we really kick into gear when Abraham listens to God's call and leaves his home of Ur to settle in the land of Canaan. Abraham receives this covenant from God, and that covenant is a promise that Abraham's descendants will be God's chosen people forever, and that they will be fruitful, and they will multiply, and they will fill the whole earth. Abraham's son, Isaac, has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob, through a lot of stuff that we've already covered, so go listen to those lectures, ends up having, at this point in the story, in chapter 34, at least 12 children, 11 sons and one daughter, and her, his daughter is Dinah. So the way this fits is that Leah, Jacob's first wife, has six sons. I'm going to read them in order because I don't remember them in order. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and then she has Issachar and Zebulun later. Because Rachel is barren in this story, who is Jacob's second wife and Leah's sister, Rachel gives her handmaid Bilhah to Jacob, and Jacob has two sons with Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali. Leah becomes barren in the middle of all of this, and so gives her handmaid Zilpah to Jacob, who bears two sons, Gad and Asher. Finally, Leah bears those sons five and six, Issachar and Zebulun, and this daughter Dinah. Then Rachel is able to get pregnant and bears her first of two sons, Joseph. Those of you who know the Bible well know that she will also have a son, Benjamin, but Benjamin's not born until chapter 35. So here in chapter 34, Dinah is the only daughter of Jacob. They have traveled back to Jacob's hometown, and in this moment, Dinah is violated by some of the people that already live in that land. These are not relatives of Jacob or Esau or Isaac. These are the Hivite people. And so if you want to start, look at chapter 34, verse 1, and we're going to read the first few verses. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the region. When Shechem, son of Hamer, the Hivite, prince of the region, saw her, he seized her, and lay with her by force. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, get me this girl to be my wife. So this starts off kind of rough. Dinah is very much raped here in this scene. What happens here in this scene is a little confusing because, yes, Dinah is effectively raped here, and the implication is that Shechem doesn't really know Dinah, but as the story unfolds, Shechem seems really drawn to Dinah, that Shechem might even love Dinah, and obviously his love is not expressed in the way it should, but there does seem to be a real love from Shechem to Dinah. Look at verse 8. Hamer spoke with them, when this means Jacob and his sons, saying, The heart of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves, and you shall live with us, and the land shall be open to you. Live and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said, 
to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor with you and whatever you say to me, I will give. Put the marriage present and gift as high as you like and I will give whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl to be my wife. So in this scene, we have gotten here in a very bad way. I Effectively, what is happening is Shechem has done something wrong, and he knows he's done something wrong, but he's trying to reconcile. He's trying to make it right. And so in that sense, what Shechem does with his father, Hamer, is they go to Jacob and his sons, Dinah's brothers, and say, we will give you anything in order for you to let me marry Dinah. Shechem hasn't done right. But he's trying to figure out how to be honorable here after having made a horrible mistake. And he says to Jacob and his sons, whatever you want, we will give. Because we want you to be with us. We want to be with you. We want you to marry our daughters. We want to marry your daughters, which is just a weird biblical way of saying, let's actually unify our tribes, unify our families, and be more prosperous together rather than staying separate. This is a very interesting moment because if you've been with me before now, you know that in Genesis, particularly in the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob stories, bloodline marriages are critically important. Abraham marries Sarah, that's in the family, when it's time for Isaac to find a wife. Abraham sends his servant back to their hometown to find a wife that is good for Isaac, who ends up being also within the family, Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob and Esau, and Jacob goes back to the homeland to also find a wife who is within the right bloodline, and he finds Leah and Rachel. Bloodline marriages are critical. There is this understanding within these Israelites that they need to make sure that the bloodline is pure in order to receive God's blessing so that God's covenant, God's promise continues to be with them with each successive generation. So this moment is a little strange because we should expect that Jacob and Jacob's sons would decline this invitation. And in fact, they do. Look at verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. This is a pretty dynamic little section, these verses. First, we see that the storyteller foreshadows something, right? When we say, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully. That's a strong word. Deceitfully foreshadows something that's really going to happen at some point. We don't know yet, but deceitfully is strong. And so we kind of bookmark that for something's going to happen in the future. But then they say to them, you know, we cannot give our sister to you to marry because it would disgrace us. It would disgrace us because you are uncircumcised. So we're going to pause here because most of you probably know this, but the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and Abraham's descendants is male circumcision. We won't go into why that's the case, but we just need to note that part of the commitment to God because of God's covenant with Abraham is that men are circumcised and men within the Israelite tradition are circumcised within days of their birth. At this moment, 
We have an odd situation because Jacob's sons have noted that Dinah can't marry them because it would be a disgrace. But what did they say the disgrace would be? Because they are uncircumcised. So it's as if they've forgotten that he raped her. No, the disgrace is not about the marriage because maybe theoretically the marriage can make the rape okay, which it doesn't make rape okay. But the marriage is really not the issue as much as them not being part of the tribe, not being part of the chosen, not being circumcised. And so let's look at verse 15. Jacob and his sons continue, only on this condition will we consent to you that you will become as we are and every male among you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live among you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. In this moment, we begin to see the blossoming of the deceit. Jacob's sons are creating a possibility that maybe we could be unified, right? Our people with your people, that our daughters could intermarry, which means we would be yoked for good. Only if you are circumcised like us, only if you become like us, like the chosen people, like the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is strange because bloodline has been so critically important up to now and it seems like maybe it's being thrown out the window. But remember, the storyteller told us that Jacob's sons were speaking deceitfully. We're about to see what that deceit means. Look at verse 20. So Hamer and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These people are friendly with us. Let them live in the land and trade in it, for the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will they agree to live among us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their animals be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will live among us. And all who went out of the city gate heeded Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So very simply put, the Hivites have complied. They said, Shechem wants to marry Dinah. Put the price of the marriage as high as you want it to be. And they put that price, if we can be frank, very high. All the men had to be circumcised. And so Shechem and his dad Hamar go back, tell all the men of their tribe, this is good. And effectively what they're saying is, this is good for everyone. This is kind of an economic good, right? There's this strong family, they've got a lot of stuff. We are strong, but we will be stronger together. We can actually yoke ourselves together by making this kind of commitment, by complying to all be circumcised together, will allow us to intermarry and to create a stronger economic and likely military reality to help protect them and help them prosper and flourish and thrive. So, in a sense, Shechem, poor Shechem, Shechem and his dad, they're kind of approaching this with some real genuine goodness, right? They 
kind of, even though it's not quite good enough, want to reconcile this wrong done to Dinah. Shechem seems to be in love and wants to marry her, and they want to create this unity among their peoples. And so they comply. All the men get circumcised. And I can imagine that Shechem in that moment is feeling good, right? He gets to marry the woman that he abused, but maybe the woman he loves and maybe gets to reconcile that horrible experience in order to build a brighter future. But reconciliation is not what happens. Look at verse 25. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city unawares and killed all the males. They killed Hamer and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the other sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and made their prey. Holy crap. So here in this moment, when Hamer, Shechem, and their people think that they're doing something genuine, all the while, this deceit has been building within Jacob's sons. They have effectively uh, hindered, we will say, um, the Hivites' capacity to fight back and defend themselves. On the third day after their circumcision, I'm just going to say those men are not going to be able to fight for themselves, right? That's not the moment when they can take up arms and defend themselves properly. And so in a very wise, deceitful, very cunning way, Jacob's sons have critically injured all of the men in this tribe, and then they take advantage of that injury. They go in and they slaughter and they massacre and they take everything. They plunder this tribe. Now, what I think is really, really powerful here is that the sign of the covenant of God's love for his people, this circumcision, has become a weapon, a sign of death. This is meant to be something genuine and good, something that the Israelites are able to show to God their commitment to be God's people in the world and it has been flipped and turned on its head and used for this genuine evil. It's a shocking moment. What had been this kind of lovely vision of unifying a people has absolutely been turned on its head. And what I see in this moment is a misunderstanding of the covenantal uh, reality that God made with Abraham. One of the questions I get regularly in Bible study centers around this idea of kind of who's in and who's out, who can be chosen and who isn't chosen. And the easiest way I can, I know, to kind of explain what chosenness really means is that chosenness is where God chooses a people and then the people respond to God in order to help spread God's love in the world. So the chosenness of the Israelites and of the Jewish people that extends to Christians 
is not a chosenness that limits. It's not about being God's favorites. What it's really about is being the people that God chooses and then we choose back that we become the vessels, the hands and feet in the world to spread God's message, to spread that news, to spread that love. Being chosen doesn't mean that we are somehow set apart as better. Being chosen actually imparts a responsibility. And that responsibility is to bear God's goodness, God's spirit out into the world and to bring people in. In essence, what could have been a profound faithful moment, a profound covenantal moment, bringing the Hivites into that big tent under God's chosenness is totally turned on its head and it's kind of horrible. So Jacob knows this. And so at the end of chapter 34, look at chapter 34, verse 30, we see Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob here is a pragmatist. He knows that what they have done to the Hivites is not okay and effectively makes the Israelites a target. Jacob knows that although they're doing well, they're not doing well enough to defend against the inhabitants of the land if they were to gather up and all come at the Israelites, at Jacob and his family. They won't be able to defend against that. And so Jacob now is a little wary of this bad behavior, of this kind of horrible massacre, may come back to bite them in the end. So that really brings me effectively to the end of chapter 34. I'm going to kind of try to catch up here and see if I've got some questions that we could gather together. Oh my goodness, there are 47 comments right now. I'm not entirely sure that I'm going to be able to do this. Um, Let me see. I've never really done a live video like this, and so I'm not entirely sure how I can scroll through and see all these comments all at once. Um, Let me see. I'm going to see... Oh, I can click on chat. Look, you're going to learn along with me, right? This is something that I have not done before. Um, Ah, no questions so far. Good. Must be that I'm such a clear teacher. (laughs) So being, being real quick... Do you all have any questions? Type them right here and let's see if we can clarify anything that I've said about chapter 34. The truth is the biggest, most important part of today's study really is chapter 34. Chapters 35 and 6 are important as just stepping stones in the story, but chapter 34 has kind of the greatest theological weight to it. And so I do want to take a minute and see if there are any questions. Um... Ha, holy crap indeed, I see that question. So write down here if you've got any um, to potentially make clear any of the points um, that I've made so far. Let me see, I'm just scrolling through. Oh, it's so nice, everyone's being so sweet. Just watching, saying hi. I think that's great. 
So no questions yet. You know, when I was taking education classes in grad school, I remember being taught that I had to wait seven or eight seconds for people to form questions. And that's what I'm kind of trying to do. Not only have to wait seven or eight seconds for people to form questions, but perhaps wait seven or eight more seconds for people to type in those questions. I think it's kind of necessary. All right, nothing? Okay. All right, so let's see. We are going to pop back and continue our study by looking at chapter 35. Oh, I see a question here. Okay. So why is the lie okay? And story about rape turned around and not be about rape. <laughs> yes, I know that is, it's horrible. Okay, so first off, hey, Christine. Hey, Wendy, good to see you. Um, so let's, let's start with the lie. The lie, I think it's too strong to say that the lie is okay. The lie is not okay, but the lie is used as a means of getting to the end. Um, I want to say again that Genesis is not written to be kind of a journalistic history like we think about when we think about uh, history, we think about trying to be as accurate as possible. Well, I'll say we used to think that way. I'm not even entirely sure what we think now, but that's, I won't go there. Um, that's off the rails. So, but you know, in general, we kind of tend to think of history as something to be very accurate. We try to record exactly what people say, where people are and that sort of stuff. Genesis is not meant to be that kind of history. Genesis is a story. And so for the storytellers, we have to always look at it and whether that's, you know, both to the question of the lie or the question of how this story began as an obvious rape, but then it's kind of like they never dealt with the rape again, um, which is, I think, very strange to a modern reader. We have to ask what really is the point of the storytellers? And so as I noted before, the Israelites are taken into exile in Babylon and they're in exile in Babylon for many generations. As they wrestle with this question that is hard, you know, how did this happen? What did we do wrong? Did God leave us or did we leave God? You know, those are big, big deal questions. Part of the structure of Genesis is to try and answer those questions for the future. And so the question here about the, um, the way in which Jacob's sons deal with the Hivites has to be seen through the lens of kind of that ancient peoples, those in exile. Um, it's important that we don't put on top of these stories our modern sensibilities first. It's good to do that because we can glean from these stories some lessons for how we live today. But in this study, I think the first step is to say, okay, who are the people who are writing the story and why would they have written it this way? To that end, as I've noted before, bloodlines matter. For the Jewish people in exile, as they are wrestling with this question of what did we do wrong, one of the critical ideas that they begin to unpack is how they let the purity of their identity as God's chosen people 
fall away. And the way that that purity about being God's chosen people fell away to them is that they began to intermarry. They began to marry outside of their religious identity, outside of their tribal identity, and that as they did so, they began to mix these religious ideas together that ultimately diluted what God wanted them to be. And we know this is the case because we see this through some of the prophetic messages that come both in the exile and after the exile. And then as the Jewish people create a new legal structure post-exile, when they return to Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple. So that second temple where Jesus was in the Gospels, when that temple is rebuilt and they create all that structure around what it means to be Jewish, one of the critical ideas that they uh, grasp onto is this idea that they should not marry outside their tradition because it's important that they maintain a purity of marriage because marriage means that new ideas intermingle with old ideas. And we may see that as kind of a gift, a gift of um, opening up our minds to new ideas, to different ways of seeing the world that can actually make our own faith deeper. But in exile, when the Jews are thinking, what did we do wrong? What is so critical is that they think that, or they land on an idea that means that they need to maintain their purity, that the impact of all the other peoples has led them astray, and that God is, in effect, kind of teaching them a lesson. They, they do land on that God does not leave them, but that God let this happen, let the exile happen, in order to teach them a lesson, and this is one of the lessons that they glean from the exile. So all of that is to say, this seeming, uh, seemingly uh, condoning a lie and this twisting of rape into something that is even, I mean, gosh, you know, a, a massacre of a people is even worse, is really meant to reinforce the idea that keeping it in the family is critical, that they cannot let other people dilute the purity of God's covenant with the chosen people, the Israelites, the Jews. It's not perhaps the way we would want it to be. <laughs> I'll just say that. That's like an understatement, right? No, we, we would not prefer to massacre people. Um, but it's important for us to understand the context in which these stories are written so that then we can better understand what we can take from these stories. So what I might take from this story is a look at the way that humanity can be messy. We're going to see this too as we jump forward. Um, chapter 35 focuses on Jacob. And I think when you hold 34 and 35 together, what you see is that our human condition is just problematic. We are profoundly imperfect. And our profound imperfection could get in the way, could undermine our relationship with God, could keep us from ever genuinely being at one with God, if not for God's grace. God is who never leaves us. 
We regularly leave God. We choose against God's wishes all the time, even when we don't want to, even when we have made the same mistake, we're going to make it again. And as much as we try and as much as we try to lift each other up, we are simply imperfect. And that imperfection could undermine our transformation, could undermine our salvation, except God's grace is far bigger than our imperfection. And when we in our faithfulness come back to God again and again and again, we find that God never left us in the first place, that God's faith is in us, and that God will re-reconcile over and over and over again because God's love is infinite and eternal. And for me, what I see here in this horrible story is God's willingness to come back to us in our brokenness, in our imperfection, even in our hate, and love us anyway. And that's, that I hope is a comfort. I hope when we have done things that we know would not only be not just embarrassing, but are genuinely bad, that God loves us anyway and that God wants us to reconcile, and that God wants us back. When we are separated from one another physically like we are right now, and we may feel alone, to know that we are not truly alone. We may not have a person near us, hopefully no closer than six feet, but even though we are physically separated, we are very emotionally and spiritually connected, that God is with us everywhere, all the time. and. I think that can be quite a comfort. So that was a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I'd like to see what people might be saying um, because I'm imagining that there are going to be some comments about that. Let me see. Mm. All right, so let's see. Was the author of this chapter trying to show that the Israelites needed laws? I, I think that's a, great, that's a great question, and I think that that's actually what we can glean. One of the things we can glean from this um, is that in exile, they're trying to um, maybe even create a defense for why laws are very important. Um, let me see. Yeah. Okay, great. I think we're good. Any other final questions? I see, by the way, I see lots of clergy um, on this comment thread. And so please go for it. Um, Answer any questions or help in that comment thread um, would be great. All right, I think we're good in that. Um, Okay, let's keep going. So as I noted, chapter 35 kind of pivots back to Jacob. So flip over to chapter 35. Um, We're going to jump through the first few verses, um, one to six to nine, um, just so we can kind of get a sense of the story. And then we're going to talk about that story. So starting in chapter 35, verse one, and I'll tell you when we jump around. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and settle there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
Jump to verse six. Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Jump to verse nine. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padamaram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he was called Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall spring from you. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and kings, oh, sorry, and I will give the land to you and to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him at that place where he had spoken to him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So, for you close Bible studiers out there, or for those who've been with me um, before, you know that we have heard this story already. This is an excellent example of how Genesis often offers two versions of the same story. So for those of you who have studied Genesis in the past or have been with me on this study, you will note that there are multiple moments along the way where Genesis seems to just be redundant or perhaps tell the same story, but very differently. We've seen this. Um, there are two creation stories. We know that there are two accounts of God's covenant with Abraham. And here we get two versions of Jacob receiving a new name. So chapters ago, Jacob had already done all of this. Jacob had already talked to God. God had already said, your name's not going to be Jacob anymore. Your name's going to be Israel. And yet Jacob was still referred to as Jacob in the story. And then we come to this point and Jacob gets a new name again, basically the same story. Before we get into the actual study of the chapter, I think it's important for us to note that in the oral tradition that led the Israelites to the exile, stories like this one of how Jacob got the name Israel were told over and over and over again. And if you imagine tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people within the Israel nation, those stories would have been told very differently in different parts, right? Each tribe may have told that story differently. Each city within each tribe may have told that story slightly differently. And over the course of generations of hundreds of years, those stories could diverge and become very different. We see that, I think, most explicitly in the first couple chapters of Genesis, where we get two creation stories. If I were to tell you, if I were to ask you to tell me the story of creation, you'd likely tell me one of those two. Similarly, we have two birth narratives about Jesus in the Gospels, right? We have a generation of oral storytelling that diverges, and we get two very different stories of the same event, right? If you hold Matthew and Luke up next to each other, the birth stories of Jesus, they are completely different, and we've just simply merged them for all of our nativity pageants. Similarly, in Genesis, we get these two stories that tell depict the same event told 
very differently and sometimes pretty similarly. This story happens to be told pretty similarly to the one that happened before, except it seems to be out of order. And so obviously the way that the storyteller, the writers of Genesis have kind of fixed this problem is by telling Jacob to, oh, go to Bethel again and see if God is there. And so Jacob goes on, he goes to Bethel again, has the same experience with God, and the storytellers have taken these two versions and effectively made them the first time it happens and the second time it happens. For us, we can kind of note that we understand the way that storytellers work. We know why the storytellers may have done it that way. For us, what can we glean from this? It goes back to what I said at the end of chapter 34. By telling this story a second time, I don't think the storytellers were simply running out of material, right? They weren't just at a loss for stuff to say. They made it a choice to tell the story again. So why would they tell the story again? I think it has to do with the kind of horrible nature of chapter 34. You cannot read chapter 34 and not think that things have gone very wrong. But when you follow chapter 34 with chapter 35, there is this renewing of the covenant. There is a reconciliation, so to speak, of Jacob and his family with God. Absolutely. We cannot think that God condones what happened in chapter 34. But God still loves Jacob. God still loves Jacob's sons and his descendants. And so in this moment of chapter 35, by retelling the story, we are reminded that God chose Jacob too. Yes, Jacob said to God, I'm going to do all these good things. And Jacob has obviously not done all those good things. But that kind of sounds like us, right? We at some point said that we're going to follow God. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to do the good stuff. And how many of us have made mistakes and have gotten off that path at some point? Ha, ah, me, all of us. And hopefully we know in our souls and our bones that when we fall off that path, God wants us back on, that God will be there waiting for us to choose God again. In this moment, Jacob is effectively choosing God again. And God is affirming his choice of Jacob, his love of Jacob. And I think that that's the most important thing to glean from this chapter 35, to hold it together with chapter 34 as a big macro lesson that really nothing can separate us from the love of God ever. Nothing that we have done, nothing that we will do will ever separate us from God's love. God will love us to the end, period. God loves us, no exceptions. So we're going to kind of pause there because that mostly ends the story of Jacob, chapter 35. If you got some questions, put them down there in the comments um, or over here in the comments. Um, chapter 35 does not end quite there. We get a few little moments at the end of chapter 35, not a lot to talk about, but just for us to note that 
Benjamin, the twelfth son of Jacob, is born to Rachel. Then Rachel dies, and she is buried near Bethlehem. And then Isaac dies. I mean, by the way, Isaac's still been alive, apparently, this whole time. And so Isaac dies after Rachel, and Isaac is buried near Abraham, and Isaac is buried by Jacob and Esau. So what began as descending into the pit of chapter 34, where it seemed like every single decision was wrong, we've begun to climb out of that pit through God's choosing Jacob again, Jacob choosing God again. And then we kind of reach the end of chapter 35, where we continue to kind of come out of that pit, so to speak, where Jacob and Esau, who have such a dynamic history, come together in order to bury their father together, which is in itself kind of a beautiful moment because they really do have this unity, even though they've had such dramatic problems in the past. All right, I see a question popped up. Um, oh, good question, Dottie. Um, so do Jewish scholars have the same perspective about Genesis that I do um, historically and relative to their faith? Um, I'm going to say no, but I'll qualify that no, right? So first off, I am Christian. And so as a follower of Jesus, I read the whole of the Old Testament through the lenses of the gospel, because that's where I anchor my relationship with God is through Christ. That being said, most of what I have said to you is the common shared understanding of biblical scholars. So you note Jewish scholars. And so I do want to say that a Jewish, specifically a Jewish scholar, will certainly read these stories differently than a Christian scholar. Um, but people who have looked at the Bible as more of an academic discipline, almost like an anthropological or an archaeological or even a literary discipline, more or less will understand it like I have explained it. Um, I think it's important for us to note that even though inspired, these stories are written by people and every person even the most faithful, inspired person is going to have some kind of human perspective here. And pretty much the entire Torah, right? So the first five books of the Bible that lead, um, that really create the Jewish people, so to speak, they're all written in the time of the exile or directly after, right? So the exile was in the sixth century BCE, so before the Common Era. That exile in the 6th century was followed by what we call like the post-exilic period. That is the kind of first generation or two after the exile, which bleeds into the 5th century BCE. That period taken together is really focused on reforming the Jewish people. I mean, you can kind of think of the exile as a reformation for Judaism, you know, in the way that the 16th century was a massive reformation in Christianity. The exile, post-exile, that 6th, 5th century is a massive reformation 
of Judaism. And so they shift a lot. Now, not every Jew shifts, right? We are focusing on a particular line of Judaism that connects to the Jews that would have been in power when Jesus was alive. They are the ones that are writing all of these stories, creating these laws. They rebuild the temple and they become the ancestors of Pharisees and Sadducees and others who would have been present and in power and authority when Jesus was alive. And so modern Jewish scholars would probably not take issue with most of what I've said, particularly kind of our, the progressive Jews. Um, most of us probably know, just statistically speaking, um, Jews who would find most of what I've said to be decently accurate. But that being said, when you look at something from a faith perspective, it does color your opinion. And so as a Christian person, I see this as part of a long path, a long arc of God's salvation. God has been working on humanity from the very start. And even though we perceive it differently, we've perceived that work differently throughout time, and we have perceived that work differently in different parts of the world, God is still God. And God's work on us as humans has been done in different ways, but consistently throughout all of our human history. All right, any other questions about that? I don't see any just yet, so we'll keep pushing on. Um, we've got just a few more minutes. And so we've come to the end of chapter 35. Benjamin is born. Rachel and Isaac have both died, but Isaac is buried by Jacob and Esau together, which is important because chapter 36 really focuses on Esau. Chapter 36 is effectively a long list of Esau's descendants. Esau is technically the firstborn, right? The twin of Jacob, but Jacob received the blessing. Jacob sold um, or bought Esau's birthright and all of that contributes to Esau kind of being left out of the story. But chapter 36 tells us something very important. Esau may be left out, but he is not forgotten. God remembered Esau. Esau, the son of Jacob, just like Ishmael, the son of Abraham, is remembered by God. Maybe the line of our story goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, but Ishmael is still Abraham's son and Esau is still Abraham's grandson. They also receive a blessing of that covenant from God. Ishmael goes out and multiplies. So does Esau. Just like Ishmael, Esau leaves that place where Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob are settled and goes kind of southeast. But Esau's descendants are numerous. He is fruitful and he multiplies and they become a strong nation. They move to a place where the Jews writing this story would know the Edomites live. The land of Edom, where the Edomites live, are the descendants of Esau. And it's important to note that they received that kind of blessing to be fruitful and multiply from God, but the Edomites are not loved by the Jews. The Jewish people are now in exile, right, writing these stories, and 
in the same way that they have begun to identify that intermarrying and mixing is not ideal, that it it distills their identity and opens up doors for them to undermine their covenant with God, part of that becomes people like the Edomites. I mean, Esau, Jacob's twin brother, would be the bloodline. But because Esau has, through a number of marriages, allowed his particular bloodline and their descendants to not be the kind of purity that Jacob with Leah and Rachel have been, the Jews in exile are reflecting on this, and they begin to tell the story of the Edomites as having, yes, received a blessing, but they are not of this tribe. And the way the story is told means that they need to remain separated from even the people who should seem to be close enough to be part of the tribe, like the Edomites. All right, that's it. I don't see any other questions. Um, and our time is up at 1130. Um, I always talk too long and we tend to have to do the end very quickly. That's that's my trademark. Um, and so I'm very glad that you all were able to join me here while we are all sheltering in place, which seems like it's going to be for many weeks at this point. Um, know that I'm going to be doing this live here at 1030 a.m. every Wednesday. Um, I love doing this. And so I hope that you will join me. Tell your friends that they can join me here, too. And a special note if you know of anyone who is not on Facebook but still likes this Bible study, and um, we've been contacted by quite a few who just, they don't do Facebook, and so they wanted to know how we can access this. What we will do is we will take this video and we will post the video, embed a YouTube video, and just the audio of this study on St. Michael's website. In the comments, not in the comments, but in the description of this video, you'll see a link to the stmichael.org slash rector's Bible study. There you can hear the audio of all of the classes from the beginning of this school year, from the beginning of Genesis. And from today on, we'll have the video of the lesson posted there as well. And who knows, maybe we'll just start doing videos even when we're back together live um, at St. Michael again. So I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been great for me to be with you. And if you've got questions, put them down in the comments. I'll try to get to them after this live video is over. And know that wherever you are, even if you are physically separated from your people, you are not alone. God is with you. And it does not cost a thing to remind your family and your friends that they are not alone either. So take a break from the news, put that stuff down, call someone you love, maybe call a few people you love and remind them that you're there for them. God bless you all. I'll see you next week.